If you have your Bibles this morning, please turn with me to Luke chapter 18. I'll actually be in Luke 18 and 19, uh, both a little bit today. The year was 2008, and my world was in crisis. In all fairness, uh, in 2008, everyone's world uh, was in crisis. But this was the first time that I remember it, uh, just feeling in a way that these problems uh, that we were facing were bigger than just my own. Uh, 2008 was, of course, the year uh, that many of us realized that the security we had placed in, in our finances uh, were in jeopardy, that our country was in the midst of this full-blown recession. The stock market was in shambles, the global market was weak, the real estate uh, market was collapsing, and, and everyone was looking for a bailout. Now, prior to 2008, I had never even heard the word recession before, but in my infinite wisdom as a 19-year-old at the time, I knew exactly what we would need to do to fix it. I had to place one very important call to my mom. (laughs) Uh, My mom had been a banker her entire adult life, and so surely if anyone would have the answers with this financial crisis at hand, it would be her. And so I called her up. And I just, I still vividly remember it to this day. I, I said, Mom, I just heard all of this on the news about uh, this recession and, and the markets and, and everything. And what are we going to do? And she just said, well, you know, honey, sometimes the economy goes through uh, hard times. And, and it has a way of, of working itself out again. And so we're just going to trust in God that he will take care of us. My mom had the answer It just wasn't the one I was expecting. We've been in a series uh, throughout this summer called Christian Atheist, uh, based on a book by Pastor Craig Rochelle. Uh, And the premise of this series, of this title, is believing in God but living as if he doesn't exist. And so in that moment, uh, I was a Christian atheist in my college dorm room. In that moment in 2008, that snapshot in time, uh, I believed in God But I was still looking to Wall Street and bears and bulls and bailouts uh, for my trust, for my hope, to fix my problems. And so this morning, when it comes to this idea of Christian atheism, I want to look at one that probably affects each one of us when you believe in God, but trust more in money. Because in many ways, I continue to be a recovering Christian atheist when it comes to my trust in money. And I'm willing to bet that most of you probably are as well. It's not that we trust in money because we consider ourselves rich or particularly wealthy by most people's standards, but simply because of how money works. Uh, Most people would not say at any point in their lives, you know, I have enough money. Because enough is always a relative term. Enough is, is, is never enough. And you ever notice that when we talk about rich people, you tend to think of those people who are kind of just one tier Uh, above yourselves. If you make $40,000 a year, well, then the rich are those who make six figures. And if you make six figures in salary, well, then the rich are those millionaires and and billionaires and the the 1%. There's just, money is never enough. Money is something we can never get enough of because money can never provide the security and the hope that we really need in this life. Yet all of this, the great irony of all of this, is that the message on our money tries to tell us a different story. Because on the back of every American dollar bill, you'll find what four words? In God we trust. And so how can we move from in money we trust to truly saying in God we trust? Well, in Luke chapter 18 and 19, 
this morning, we see Jesus interact with two men uh, who show us what it takes to fully trust in God, even uh, while they've been trusting in their wealth and their resources. You'll probably be familiar with both of these men, but we see them set as opposites to one another to see the two responses that we can have when it comes to material wealth, money, and possessions. The first guy we meet seems to have kind of everything going for him. He comes to Jesus with a very simple question, uh, Luke 18, verse 18. It says, A certain ruler asked Jesus, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Right up front, we see a problem with his question because we know that receiving eternal life is not something based on what we do. We don't earn it. We receive it. But from that, it just kind of goes downhill for this man. One of the most interesting things I I found about this guy that we often call the rich young ruler is that three of the four Gospels all include the story of this man's interaction with Jesus. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all include this story, uh, this this conversation between this rich young ruler and Jesus. And when we combine these three accounts, we see several characteristics of this man. We see first that he is rich. It's the most obvious one. He had material possessions. And often, you know, when I come to this story, and and you probably do uh, have some of this as well, when I come to this story, uh, I come to kind of the conclusion, you know, this is the story about that rich guy who couldn't let go of his dirty, filthy money. You know, he's he's bad because he couldn't let go of the things he clung to, and so he he missed out. Uh, But the problem was not with this guy's money. The problem is with anything that we place uh, before God in our trust. The problem is with anything we trust more in than we trust in God. Most people think that wealth is kind of tangible proof of God's blessing in this life. That if you are wealthy, you must be doing something right for God to bless you in this way. But Jesus kind of denounces this this mindset. And he denounces any barrier that would hinder our trust in him. Again, it wasn't this man's riches that were the problem. It was his lack of faith that was the problem. The second characteristic comes from Matthew's telling of this story, uh, that this man was also young. And sometimes youth can be uh, a detriment. It can be a lack of experience. You can make impulsive mistakes in your youth. But for this man, I think youth was actually an advantage. He had opportunities to make a difference. He had his whole life ahead of him, yet he was set to do something with what he'd been given. He had this youthful optimism. He ran up to Jesus as Jesus was getting closer to Jerusalem. He was anticipating the kingdom was coming, and so he wanted to get in while he could. He had this kind of go-get-at-it attitude, these opportunities, and this whole life ahead of him. He was young. Luke tells us that he was a ruler. We're not exactly sure what kind of ruler, probably not a king, but maybe a a government official of some kind, maybe a judge, maybe he was prominent in the local synagogue. But regardless of what kind of ruler, we know that rulers have power and opportunity and influence. And with all of this great responsibility, this man comes before Jesus and lays it on the line and says, what must I do? How do I become yours? So this guy who has a bright, ambitious future ahead of him comes to Jesus because he has everything the world could offer him. But still he feels that something is missing. And so Jesus tells him exactly what is missing. He says, why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. We'll return to that statement in a minute. 
He says, you know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. To which the man replies, all of these I have kept since I was a boy. This guy had lived a good life. And not just a good life and enjoying the pleasures this world offers. A good life by God's standard. He had followed all the right rules. He had been righteous in his deeds. Notice even in what Jesus tells him, some of the things that Jesus says you must follow are some of the Ten Commandments. But he only gives six of them. Jesus says to this man, uh, I know that you followed kind of the horizontal commandments. The commandments that come in dealing with other people around you. You've done well with those. But you're missing the vertical ones. How you've interacted with God. You see, I used to read this story uh, with kind of a lens of, of skepticism. You know, I looked at this guy as kind of insincere. You know, like, yeah, oh yeah, sure, bring your, your, your report card to Jesus and lie about how good your grades are. But the more I reflect on this story, the more I think that this guy was probably being honest. I think this guy really did follow all of those commandments pretty well, like he claimed. I think this guy was like the do-gooder of his day. You know, this guy would have been looked up to as one to model your life after. He was faithful, he was temperate, he was honest, he honored and, and paid respect and took care of his parents. But for all of this, Jesus saw one thing standing in the way of a true, genuine relationship and trust in God. And so he goes right for this man's kind of spiritual jugular. Verse 22 says, when Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. It says, when he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus says, when it comes to a relationship with me, when it comes to a trust in me, there's still one thing you lack. There's one thing in your way. To have true, genuine relationship with God, you've got to get rid of the thing you trust in more than you trust in Him. And we look at this, and we see Jesus kind of use this language of sell everything you have, and we think, well, come on, Jesus, be reasonable. I mean, how can this man possibly give away everything he has? What if he has a medical emergency, or, or his camel gets a flat? I mean, surely he wants to retire at some point in his life. In fact, Jesus' command would have been just as unreasonable uh, to his contemporaries as it is to us. Other Jewish rabbis living in the same time of Jesus forbid people from giving away more than 20% of their wealth for fear of them reducing themselves to poverty by your excessive generosity. But Jesus doesn't say, give away 20% or give away a sizable amount. Jesus says, everything. And this man's everything was quite a lot. But compare this guy to the second man Jesus meets in the next chapter of Luke. Luke 19 verse 1 says, Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. If you've been kind of going to church since you were a kid, uh, you probably know Zacchaeus well. 
There's a, a, even old song, Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. I'll spare you the rest. Uh, but we remember Zacchaeus. We know his story, that the flannel graph, little man on the, the baby blue board singing the songs. We know about this guy. And most of us, because we know the end of his story, think fairly fondly of him. But though Zacchaeus is popular in our retellings, he would not have been well-liked in his day. Now, I know that nobody really loves the IRS. I'm guessing that you probably did not spend, uh, send a Christmas card to your, uh, your IRS agent this year. But Zacchaeus would have been on a totally different level. Zacchaeus would have been despised by everyone who knew him. You see, to be a tax collector in this time was to be a contractor for the enemy, to be a tax collector for the Roman government, to pay for the army that was subjugating your own people which also basically meant that he had a legal license to steal. Whatever Zacchaeus collected uh, over and above what he was required to went straight into his own pockets. And so not only were tax collectors traitors, but they were wealthy traders making money off their own people. In fact, in addition to being short, I'm pretty sure Zacchaeus had to climb this tree because people were probably boxing him out on purpose. You know, the one area of power they had over Zacchaeus was to block him from getting to see Jesus. But this story doesn't end how you would expect. It says, when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up. And said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now, I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. So we see these two guys. Very different men, very different backgrounds, very different levels of faithfulness to God. And so the big question is, when faced with these two men, why did the rich young ruler, the guy who had kept the commandments, the guy who had demonstrated at least some level of faithfulness, miss out on the kingdom while Zacchaeus, the thief and the cheat, the con man, walk away with salvation? We see it wasn't because of, of what they gave. Zacchaeus only gave away half of what he had. Well, Jesus required the other man to give away everything. The reason is because Zacchaeus demonstrated trust when the rich young ruler couldn't let go of what was getting in the way. I'm reminded of a story uh, of a climber, a hiker, uh, who was climbing in the cliffs, uh, and he lost his handhold at one point and fell Uh, What he thought was to death when the last minute he grabbed hold of this small branch and was just clinging there for dear life. And as he was hanging from this small branch, he began to yell, Help! Help! Is anyone up there? Anyone can hear me? A majestic voice boomed down through the gorge. I will help you, my son, but first you must have faith in me. The man said, Yes, yes, I I trust you, Lord, Whatever, whatever it takes. And he said, Let go of the branch. Well, there's a long pause, and the man said, Is there anyone else up there I could talk to? Sometimes we hear what Jesus says, but we want to know if there's another way. 
We want to know if there's someone else that we can talk to. And briefly, I want to give you three ways that Zacchaeus demonstrated his faith when the rich young ruler didn't. Three ways that we can let go of the branch and fully trust in God. Because if you're like me, and are often a Christian atheist with your money, you know something needs to change, but maybe you don't know what. And so if you believe in God, but trust more in money, I want to encourage you to get a clearer picture of Jesus. To get a clearer picture of Jesus. Verse 19, I said we'd come back to it. The story of the rich young ruler, Jesus says something odd to this man. When the man approaches Jesus and calls him good teacher, Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And at first it sounds like Jesus is distancing himself, denying his divinity. But what he's really telling this man is before you come to me seeking my my advice, do you understand my identity? Do you come to me as just another teacher, a self-help guru, someone who can help you navigate your problems and live a better life, or do you truly understand who I am and what I require? Compare that to Zacchaeus, who when seeking a clearer picture of Jesus, did whatever it took to see him. Even when it meant humiliation and climbing this tree, Jesus becomes clearer to Zacchaeus because he saw a clearer picture of him. And as he climbs this tree and he gets a clearer picture of Jesus, he comes to see him as Lord. I want to encourage you to seek a clearer picture of Jesus, to know what he asks of us. If you trust in God, if you believe in God but trust more in money, I also want to encourage you to demonstrate a readiness to repent. Demonstrate a readiness to repent. When this rich young ruler learned of what he must do, what he must sacrifice for a right relationship with God, his response wasn't repentance. In Mark's account, uh, it says when Jesus told him what he must do to sell everything he has and give to the poor, it says that this, the man's face, fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. This word fell is used in other places to describe a, a gloomy sky. The message paraphrase of the Bible says the man's face clouded over. He couldn't do it. He couldn't repent. He couldn't let go. He couldn't change direction. But when Jesus met Zacchaeus, he doesn't ask him to give away his wealth as a demonstration of trust. He doesn't give him the same requirement because he doesn't need to. When Zacchaeus learned the truth of who Jesus was, his response was one of ready repentance. He says, look, Lord, here and now I will give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anyone out of anything, I will repay them four times the amount. You see, when we understand what is getting in the way of a relationship with Jesus, the only right response is to get rid of it. And so for some of you, maybe that is wealth. Maybe the thing that you trust in for your hope and your security and your happiness is the money you have. But for others of you, maybe what you trust in uh, is a relationship that you shouldn't be in or a job that you shouldn't have that's not good for you. I mean, you, you probably know whatever it is that's standing in the way already, the branch that you're clinging to rather than trusting in God. So I want to encourage you to repent to have a readiness to let go of what's getting in the way. 
Lastly, if you believe in God but trust more in money, I want to encourage you to adopt a spirit of generosity. To adopt a spirit of generosity. Now this sermon is not a, a giving sermon per se. My goal here is not to get you to put more in the plate. But the antidote to greed is generosity. Does that mean I'm giving you the same charge that Jesus gave the rich young ruler to sell everything you have and give to the poor? No. But I do want to encourage you to become a sacrificial giver because God is a sacrificial giver. When God wanted a relationship with us, He didn't pursue us with spare change and 2%. Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also along with Him graciously give us all things? God is a God of extravagant generosity. A God who would give of Himself sacrificially, even to death, so that we might know Him and be known by Him. So church, what's standing in our way? What's the branch that we're hanging on to, clinging to, rather than letting go and trusting God? What are you trusting in for your security, for your happiness? Are you, like me, often a recovering Christian atheist who trusts in God, believes in God, but trusts more in money? Whatever it is this morning, I want to invite you to encourage you to let that go. I want to encourage you to get a clearer picture of Jesus, to see just what Jesus is calling us to. Not calling us to the American dream, but to the kingdom of heaven. I want you to encourage you, along with myself, to have a readiness to repent. To really sit down and evaluate, to spend some time thinking about the things that are getting in your way of trusting God get rid of them. And lastly, I want to encourage you to adopt this spirit of generosity. To give sacrificially. To give to a point where you feel it. Because God felt it. Jesus hanging on the cross felt the weight of our sin, of our, pain, of our, of our penalty, the, the price that we should have paid. And he sacrificed himself so that we could have a relationship with him. Are you likewise willing to sacrifice to return to that relationship? During this time of our invitation, I'll be up front. Some of our elders will be in the back. We'd love to pray with you and talk with you. If you need encouragement in your spiritual life to maybe walk away from some things that are getting in your way with God, we'd love to pray with you about that. Or if you have a decision to make, you want to take a step closer to Jesus and following him, establishing this relationship with him as Lord of your life, and as your Savior, we'd love to talk with you about that as well. Would you please pray with me? Father God, we uh, come before you this morning in this area, probably uh, established as Christian atheists, perhaps more than any of the other areas we've looked at so far. God, I know, at least speaking for myself, that it's easy to trust in money, to trust in wealth. Not necessarily because we have an excess of it, though we do, is simply by uh, our station as Americans. But God, because money is tangible. Money is something that we think we can look at and see hope and security. What we really need is a clearer picture of you. 
to recognize the tangible ways you touch our lives and bless our lives aside from the money that we place our trust in. And so, God, I pray that when looking at these two men, this rich young ruler and Zacchaeus, I pray that you would help us to see which one we are. Are we clinging to our wealth as our means of security and hope and meaning in this life? Or when getting a clearer picture of you, are we willing to repent of it, to let it go and adopt the spirit of generosity? God, most of all, we thank you for the ways that you have been generous to us. You graciously give us all things, including Jesus. You sent him to die for our sins so that we might have the eternal hope of living with you. God, I pray for those in this room that have not yet adopted Jesus, accepted Jesus as their Lord and Savior, that you would be moving within their hearts today to draw them closer to you, to, to allow them to put great, greater trust in you. We pray these things in Jesus' name this morning. Amen.